Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of The End of Sport, a podcast on capitalist sport, labor, and harm in sporting culture with your hosts, Johanna Mellis, Nathan Kalman-Lamb, and Derek Silva. If you're enjoying the show, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or check out our website at www.theendofsport.com, where you can find details on how to support the show via Patreon. With that said, we hope you enjoyed this episode of The End of Sport. Hi friends. Today we wanted to talk to you about uh, a new article that we've written for The Guardian on the plantation dynamics of big-time college sport. What we mean by plantation dynamics in this case is the way in which a history of racialized exploitation, unfreedom, and harm continue to be reproduced in the United States in various institutions. There is, in that sense, a continuum of the plantation. Uh, The plantation has not, in that sense, ended because we are living a sort of neo-colonial moment in which those dynamics of unfreedom and harm predicated on race, predicated on the extraction of labor and value through exploitation and harm of black people continue in the United States and continue to benefit predominantly white people in this country. And let us be very, very clear. We don't view this as an issue that is only affecting college sport. This is an issue of higher education. This is an issue of how racialized bodies and minds are valued in our so-called public institutions of higher education. The focus of our piece is on how those dynamics play out in the world of college sport. Now, before I get into sort of some of the figures we discussed in the article, it's important to think about how this is just playing out in current events right now in in U.S. college sport, because we are just seeing time and again um, the sort of the mask off nature of how U.S. college sports really is a sort of new plantation, as Billy Hawkins so importantly called it in his book. Now, what is this idea of a new plantation? For a robust discussion of this, we urge our listeners to to check out the Black Athlete podcast by Drs. Lou Moore and Derek White. Their most recent episode, The Plantation, kind of goes through this in great, great nuance. But in his book, Billy Hawkins traces out the relationships between predominantly white NCAA institutions and the black athletic laborers that are exploited by these institutions for economic gain. For Hawkins, the intercollegiate athletic industrial complex at primarily white institutions and the prison industrial complex are the new plantation models that have been designed to explicitly exploit black bodies for this economic gain through the mostly unpaid labor of college football and college basketball, 
black bodies generate massive, massive revenue for primarily white institutions made up of primarily white individuals. These individuals are then able to control, surveil, and suppress the resistance of those athletic laborers through the creation and implementation of a variety of rules, of policies, of practices, which have the real and tangible effect of controlling the lives of athletic laborers. The market, if you will, is controlled by primarily white individuals, representing primarily white institutions, who set the conditions for which participation in that market is premised. They set the working conditions, they set the wages, they set the price, and they get the revenue. And this expose by Billy Hawkins really sets the stage for why we need to talk in these terms about the NCAA and collegiate athletics more generally. Lou Moore especially said something that I that had already been sort of ruminating in my head, but of course he said it way better than I could have. Um, and he's talking about the actual word plantation. And he said, quote, we don't even use that terminology, end quote. And I'm thinking, yes, absolutely. Like, I can't even remember the last time that I heard that word used in a contemporary sense. And what they talk about is the fact that this was a, v- a word that was used very intentionally, right? Because this is not in common parlance today in the sort of conversational language, right? That it was used very intentionally. And by using it, he was actually saying the quiet part out loud. And the fact that the word plantation is the word that comes to mind, that this is very telling. So one reason event we saw was that... Um state senators in the the Republican Party in Tennessee were so outraged by uh, the protest, the anti-racist protest of some athletes in the state at one institution that they sent a letter to every single institution of higher education in the state, essentially instructing those universities to prohibit protest by athletes on courts and fields. Um, I suppose during the national anthem, uh, as a way, I think, of imposing that plantation logic upon them. The fact that those athletes are expected to work on behalf of these universities in the state of Tennessee indirectly. They're expected to produce value for these universities, but they're not expected to have the right, the rights and freedoms to express themselves and their worldview and their sense of um, morality and justice. So the fact that 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 would be stated publicly, I think, is really important to keep in mind. Because, for instance, we saw in a high school basketball game um, in Oklahoma, a commentator was caught on mic making some really hateful comments about the players' protest um, and used slurs that I certainly won't repeat to describe those players. And that caused justified outrage, of course. But the truth is that what that those senators in Tennessee did it's really no different than what that commentator did in Oklahoma. Um, They used more polite language 
but the substance of the message was exactly the same. Your labor belongs to us, and you will act the way we want you and require you to act. Um, and that's that's absolutely, um, you know, it's disgusting, and it it needs it needs to be um, it needs to be challenged. In Texas, we saw in, in another really despicable case um, over the summer of 2020, uh, or I guess the fall, I should say, um, athletes on the football team at the University of Texas protested against um, the tradition of performing along with the eyes of Texas, uh, which is, I suppose, a sort of alma mater for the school. Um, and those players felt that there was a, a minstrelsy tradition associated with the song. Um, and so very understandably rejected their obligation to participate and wanted to sort of with, withhold their participation from those traditions, given that they felt that they were plantation traditions. And in response, donors at the University of Texas emailed the university or wrote letters to the university expressing their outrage that these players would um, would take this kind of stand. Here are some of the things they said. One donor wrote to the university, it's time for you to put the foot down and make it perfectly clear that the heritage of Texas will not be lost. It is sad that it is offending the blacks. As I said before, the blacks are free and it's time for them to move on to another state where everything is in their favor. That's what one donor said. Another donor, Larry Wilkinson, um, and it's just parenthetically amazing to me that these folks, you know, <laughs> put, put their name on, put the name on these statements. Um, Larry Wilkinson wrote, less than 6% of our current student body is black. The tail cannot be allowed to wag the dog, and the dog must instead stand up for what is right. Nothing forces those students to attend UT Austin. Encourage them to set, select an alternate school now. All caps on the now, uh, in case you wondered. And there's a third. There's a third one of these really hideous statements. Um, and this one, interestingly, the name of the donor was redacted by the university, probably because of just how much money they donated to the school. This donor said, my wife and I have given an endowment in excess of $1 million to athletics. This could very easily be rescinded if things don't drastically change around here. Has everyone become oblivious of who supports athletics? So, I mean, you know, I, I read out these these um, these letters because they make it abundantly clear that uh, despite the sort of fiction of um, a sort of post-racial society that that we are often sold, these donors are abundantly clear on the fact that the plantation dynamics on campus at the University of Texas are precisely what they are paying for. They are paying to have black athletes produce wins for them as white people to validate and enrich them as white people. Um, and that's exactly the dynamic that they're looking for. And they do not see themselves as on equal footing with those athletes. They do not see those athletes as 
fundamentally rights-holding individuals. They see them, um, according to a plantation logic, as uh, in a fundamentally dehumanized way, as nothing more than labor, than as bodies. Uh, and that is truly like, a, for me, an unimaginable context in which college athletes in Texas and across the country are required to labor. And I think this is where we need to move beyond an analysis of simply looking at collegiate sport through this sort of plantation logic, but thinking about our institutions of higher education uh, much more generally, where we've created a system of, of higher education that relies on this plantation logic in the context of the NCAA and, and collegiate athletics. We have built a system where universities must rely on the revenue generated from directly from athletic departments, but also indirectly from the ancillary revenue generated because of the athletic department. Over the past several decades, across North America, we've seen the systematic gutting and underfunding and defunding of our public institutions, which has led to the over-reliance on athletic revenue, revenue generated because of the athletic department, and the revenue generated through the Disneyfication of the campus, which oftentimes explicitly includes the local stadium or arena and the college football or basketball program as the main attraction. And all of this systemic underfunding um, and reliance on new or relatively new forms of revenue has cr also created a context for which donors and boosters have a lot of influence in terms of the direction of not only the athletic department, but universities as a whole. And that we saw and we're seeing in the, in the case of UT. We so often are told that, the that there's this sort of choice to participate in college sport, that this is something that one signs up for. Um, we are told that these athletes are privileged and have all the benefits uh, that other students are denied, right? And yet, this is actually the experience that so many athletes are required to have on campus. I'm also going to bring in what another brilliant historian is, is, has talked about before, and this is Dr. Victoria Jackson, and we refer to her all the time in the podcast because she's just great. And I'm going to refer to this piece that she wrote for the LA Times in January 2018, and, and I have to say, when I read it, it really sort of jolted me into understanding my own experience as a D1 athlete, as a white female D1 athlete. And just this has really stuck with me and, you know, can be really hard for D1 athletes and for white female D1 athletes to wrap their heads around, right? Because we like to think of ourselves as, you know, the epitome of like girl, the, the 1990s girl power movement, which I very much loved girl power in the 1990s when I was a kid and that, you know, we we were lucky to benefit, you know, that we benefited from Title IX and look what we did with it. And so what she says in this piece, and we'll also link this in the show notes, and um, she essentially it breaks down 
the, the sort of the differences, obviously, between um, athletes and revenue generating sports, uh, which are who are predominantly black athletes versus athletes and non revenue generating sports who are who tend to be predominantly white athletes. And she has these two quotes I'm going to read aloud. Early on in the piece, she says, quote, unlike college athletes who bring in revenue, non-revenue athletes get to earn quality degrees. We, meaning non-revenue athletes, are the beneficiaries of college athletics. And then later in the piece, she says uh, even more concretely, quote, the predominantly white privilege of playing college sports while earning a quality degree comes at the expense of, is literally paid for by the educationally unequal experiences of mostly mostly black football and basketball players, end quote. And you know, and, and this this is rooted in her research. Right? She's just not making this claim. This is absolutely rooted in the research that Dr. Jackson has done, that many other people have done. You all know that I was a white female athlete, and therefore I would be lying if I didn't say that I, you know, and I have to say I was a beneficiary and and not only of black athletes, labor and revenue generating sports, but also and being a beneficiary of Title IX policies and sort of the, the interconnection, the, the connection between the two things, which are very, are very tightly connected. And I just, I, I think that's really crucial to point that out with respect to um, this, the use of the word plantation to describe college athletics and college football in particular. And the last example I want to point to is Creighton University basketball coach, Greg McDermott. And this was a huge story. Um, McDermott said to players at the end of the game, we need both feet in. I need everybody to stay on the plantation. I can't have anybody leave the plantation. You know, that, that kind of word is not used at, you know, sleight of hand, right? It's not something just rolls off the tongue. And if it does, that's a huge issue. And I mean, again, there it is. We have a coach at this university telling the truth about what these dynamics are. Now, again, it's abhorrent that he said what he said. And in fact, the sports media wasn't even able to acknowledge the nature of what he said, despite their own um, style guidelines. The Associated Press, for instance, referred to this as a racially insensitive remark as opposed to a racist remark. And I think even though the fact that almost nowhere in the mainstream media did we even see the word racist attached to this explicit reference to the fact that players belong on the plantation tells me that it seems like at this point, the college sports media is essentially saying that slavery in U.S. history was a Nothing more than a racially insensitive mode of production. Uh, nothing racist about it, apparently, according to this logic. And I think what's worse here is the sheer, or the attempts to normalize this type of behavior, not only in media, which obviously was the case, but also to water down these comments, not only by Greg McDermott himself in his speech where he said, Quote, I immediately recognized my egregious mistake and quickly addressed my use of such insensitive words with the team. I have never used that analogy, and it's not indicative of who I am as a person or as a coach. I would argue the fact that that was the first thing that came to mind after a, quote, tough loss on the road tells me that that is exactly who you are 
That is exactly what's in the back of your mind. And then to hear from media that these are simply racially insensitive things or that they're racially charged or any other deflection term that you can think of. And then on top of it all, to be suspended for three days by the athletic department before being reinstated after you've convinced the athletic director that you have a, quote, commitment to grow from this, to learn, unsurprisingly, immediately before the Big East tournament. This entire situation tells us a lot about accountability, or lack thereof, when you harm athletic laborers and explicitly engage a racist analogy to make a point. So, you know, we started work at this article that we, we just published in the, the Guardian before any of these events, uh, quite, a, quite a while before any of these events occurred, because this is nothing new. These are the dynamics that are occurring on our campuses, whether or not they reach the public eye, because someone states it explicitly in a letter or, or says it in a locker room. Uh, these, are the plan- these are the dynamics that are occurring regardless. And the NCAA's own statistics really tell the story. At the predominantly white institutions that comprise the Power Five, black students make up only 5.6%, five, excuse me, 5.65% of the population. Yet, in the Power Five, black athletes make up 55.85% of men's basketball players, 55.69% of men's football players, and 48.15% of women's basketball players. So in other words, what we have is a massively disproportional representation of black athletes in these revenue-generating sports, even though the um, black people are extremely underrepresented at these institutions in general, right? Again, which tells a pretty powerful story about under what conditions um, admission is permissible according to the logic of these institutions themselves. And and you sort of see this particularly at certain specific schools. At Texas A&M, which is the second highest revenue-generating institution in the country, okay, Pre-pandemic, Texas A&M was making $212 million a year off of athletics. At Texas A&M, only 3.14% of students in the general student body are black. Yet the football team is 75% black. And of course, the football team is by far the primary revenue generator at Texas A&M. And the women's basketball team is 92.86% black players. At Georgia, which is the fifth highest revenue generator in the country before the pandemic, they pulled $174 million per year in athletic department revenue. The black population of the school is higher at 7.53%, and that's representative of trends we see in the SEC particularly, which is to say um, more black students in the um, general student population than in other Power 5 schools, although still fewer than um, the proportion of black people in the United States as a whole, which hovers more around 12%. Um, But then we also see a much higher representation of black athletes in these revenue-generating athletic programs at SEC schools. So at Georgia, while while that population of black people at the school is 7.5%, 
In men's basketball, that number was 884.62%. Women's basketball, 78.57%. And men's football, 74%. So again, we see that a huge proportion of the labor in these revenue-generating sports, which are inherently exploitative, as we've talked about many times, because the players are not being paid for their labor. And in football, their bodies are literally being sacrificed to produce this tremendous amount of revenue, right? So, I mean, the very fact of who is doing the work is a very, I think, powerful story. But then there's the question also of who benefits from the work. Because if these players are not being paid, if these players are not receiving the benefits that flow from the labor, someone else actually is. Uh, And we need to name that. So in Power 5 athletic departments, who works there? That's kind of the question. Well, or and not just at athletic departments, but also in positions of authority at predominantly white institutions in the Power Five. 84.41% of chancellors and presidents in the Power Five at Power Five schools are white, as are 75% of athletic directors, 83% of associate athletic directors, and 80.94% of assistant athletic directors. Now remember, these are nonprofit institutions. So when that revenue comes in, what happens is it has to get spent on things, right? And it can't be spent on the players. So one thing it gets spent on is salaries, salaries of people who work for the university and most primarily the athletic department. So those people in those high ranking positions are compensated directly off of the exploitative labor of predominantly black athletes. That's why those numbers matter. That is a direct racial transfer of wealth, is what I am trying to say. And if that's true of athletic department officials, it's even more true of coaches. So let's look at the coaching numbers. 80.6% of heads men, have the head men's basketball coaches in the Power Five are white. 81.54% of head women's basketball coaches in the Power Five are white. And 80% of men's head football coaches are white. Interestingly, the assistant coaching numbers actually flip. Black coaches comprise 54.46% of men's basketball assistants, 53.3% of women's basketball assistants, and 39.73% of non-coordinator football assistants. So one thing we're seeing there is the fact that although, again, the racial transfer of wealth between black players and white coaches is clearly happening. At the same time, we do have some coaches being employed in these athletic departments in the lower paid positions. And these coaches are not ascending to the higher paying, more powerful head coaching positions. And given those numbers, right, there's obviously some kind of structural barrier. If you have 54% of your assistant coaches who are black and only and that yet 80% of the head coaches are white, there's something going on there, right? Because those assistant coaches who are the labor pool you expect to ascend to the position of head coaches are simply not getting those jobs. That is another plantation dynamic at work in college sport. And I also want to add, we've talked about this before, it's not only athletic department officials and coaches who benefit from the labor of black athletes in these revenue sports. It is also 
the mainstream media who cover these events. Because if the events didn't occur, they would have no stories to tell. They'd have no spectacle, no commodity spectacle to sell. And they'd have no jobs as a consequence of it. My point here is to critique the narratives that we have about college sport, you know, racial capitalist college sport, and about different sports systems around the world in comparison to what we have here. What I'm really critiquing is the narrative that, that we use here in the U.S. The, and the narrative is that, you know, if, if we were to do a national poll asking people what was the most abusive and exploitative sports system in history, I would bet that the that the overwhelming answer would be the communist sports systems in Eastern Europe. And that is because of the ways that we teach and the ways that the media and the film industry, sports media, you know, gotta, you know, gotta hammer home sports media here, the way that they produced this myth and the way that the government helped produce this myth during the Cold War, the way the media fed into it and contributed to it, and the way that narrative continues to exist today. But again, this idea that of like comparing it that it was the most abusive compared to what we have here. And you know, oh, what we have here is humane because we, you know, we don't force athletes to dope, and you know, we give college athletes this experience, you know, this, this college experience. You know, by focusing on these factors, you were totally silencing and removing by omission. And this silencing and this removal is incredibly purposeful, just like the word plantation is purposeful. The silencing of this narrative of the fact that the, the, the NCAA system is built and it was built in a white supremacist society that still exists today, that's still white supremacist. And, the, and, and as a result, the NCAA is rooted and is motivated by these same white supremacist, racial capitalist ideas, right? All, you know, when you focus on which one is more abusive and you point to one that exists outside the country, you're totally silencing and, and by omission, by purposeful admission, this entire history that our country is built on. And this is done in a purposeful way. I can't hammer that home enough. And, and you know, to, to draw up a comparison, um, last summer we wrote, we co-wrote a piece from the end of sport for Jacobin magazine that talked about the silencing of our own sport, of our own abusive sport history, abusive sport foundation with respect to the gymnastics community in the U.S. And this was in response um, primarily to the Heavy Metals podcast, um, sorry, Heavy Metals series of the 30 for 30 podcast, which Ding, 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 was produced by ESPN, sports media, mainstream sports media that tries to cover up, you know, any and all, you know, abuse, rate all forms of abuse, racism, sexism, misogyny, transphobia, uh, you know, tries to really, you know, downplay this as much as possible, except for, you know, like token people here and there. Um, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. They're using this narrative of, oh, well, this other foreign, other communist person was, was way worse than what we have. We're using that to allied, to silence and reinforce our own sporting racism that we have here. So those are the three main points for today that I wanted to make about this whole uh, usage of this really awful word. It was intentional. It was purposeful. So who... Who is doing the work in the mainstream college sports media? Well, according to uh, the Institute of um, Diversity and Equity in Sport, 
85% of sports editors, 76.4% of assistant sports editors, 80.3% of sports columnists, and 82.1% of sports reporters are white. And I want you to think about the revenue in this context. Pre-pandemic, CBS and Turner earned $655.1 million from the men's basketball tournament alone in revenue in one year. And the ESPN networks earned $792.5 million in ad revenue from football. So again, in other words, there's a lot, that's money that's, that's not the money that's going to the athletic department. That's money that's strictly going to these media companies and it's funneling into the pockets of the journalists and others who are working at these outlets. And these people are also white people earning salaries based on the unpaid labor of black people. It is a plantation dynamic. Now, the thing about these dynamics is that they are a function of structural coercion. That's what we'd like to call it, structural coercion. Aaron Hatton, in a great book that I absolutely strongly encourage you to check out called Coerced, just came out last year, describes what she calls status coercion that constrains the freedom of college athletes on campus because of the power dynamics that exist on these campuses, which is to say that players must be understood as coerced as opposed to free actors because at the end of the day, coaches and the institutions themselves control their opportunities. If they don't act according to the dictates of those um, figures with power on campus, they will simply lose their opportunities and therefore um, they aren't actually free to do what they want. And look at what happened at the University of Texas. I should have mentioned this before. After those donor letters came in, players were told if they didn't participate in the Eyes of Texas festivities, they would lose job opportunities in the state of Texas after their careers were over. That's status coercion. When the coach says, if you don't do what I say, you're going to sit on the bench. That's status coercion. When athletic department officials say, you better take these classes because they don't conflict with practice or they're easier. That's status coercion because if you don't listen, then you're a bad apple and you might not have an opportunity in that program. That is not a consensual relationship. That's a coercive relationship, and that's what Aaron Hatton calls status coercion on college campuses. And I would say that status coercion is a crucial part of the plantation dynamics of college sport, given the fact that we have just seen that it is white people who disproportionately wield that power, and it is black people who are disproportionately subjected to it. But we also want to argue that these dynamics must be understood in terms of structural coercion. The fact that U.S. racial capitalism more broadly structurally funnels racialized people in disproportionate ways towards the exploitative context of college sport because of the country's history of slavery and the racial transfer of wealth, the foreclosure of alternative pathways for social mobility, and the inaccessibility of higher education. All of these factors mean that college sport becomes a reasonable and, and frankly, desirable pathway for many 
despite the fact that it is inherently exploitative. The exploitation of college sport, in other words, relies on the neo-colonial dynamics of U.S. society itself to sustain and legitimize and valorize it. This is why we so vehemently condemn the notion that players consent or sign up to participate in these activities. Their choice to do so is made under coercive conditions and thus is not an authentic choice at all. That's the point that we really need to understand here. Now, I'd also like to share with you at this point um, a little testimony from our interviews because um, some of the things the players said really capture how painful it is to live through these plantation dynamics on campus, right? The, the numbers tell the story of the fact that we have these plantation dynamics, but I think that the most powerful piece is just how excruciating the kind of psychic and emotional toll of having to live through um, that kind of coercion and exploitation actually is. Um, a former SEC men's basketball player told us, I'm a grown man, a black man, and I have to sign my life away? To who? To a bunch of rich white guys. Nigel Hayes, former University of Wisconsin basketball star, said, Men's basketball and football are filled with black players, making money for usually white people and not able to have their share of a billion-dollar industry. So the visual is white institutions recruit black talent to make millions while dealing with the other hurdles of being black. That former SEC men's basketball player continued saying, every, every time I signed that piece of paper that said my name and likeness belonged to the university, I felt like I was giving up a piece of myself. Why should my school own my name, my image? How is that fair? David West, star basketball player at Xavier, at Xavier and a longtime NBA star, said, Athletes are expected to be content as an unpaid labor force for a system that allows economic opportunities for everyone but them. The racial undertones are always there. Etan Thomas, former Syracuse University star, said, You know when a company goes into an underdeveloped country and sets up shop there and hires the locals there for pennies while the company makes billions of dollars, then pretends that they are doing them a favor? That's basically the system the NCAA has. An ACC football player said, Football was a ticket out of the way I was living. Therefore, I wasn't able to address the fact people don't care about me, but only my athletic ability. It is especially hard doing it for no compensation worth what we have to endure, both mentally and physically. He went on. It's kind of like slave owner Mandingo fighter. And my coach is measured on how good his slaves perform. I even had a white woman tell me, I better be careful, boy because I was going south. He said, I just feel as though I was looked at and treated a certain way and did not have the same opportunities as some of my teammates due to my skin color. A WNBA player, 
former college star, said, As a black woman, the dynamics I experienced while at school were sort of different. Yeah, of course we felt that we had no choice. But to do what they told us, and that our time wasn't ours until basketball was done, you know, not even when it came to school. But there was also this constant need for us to justify our existence compared to the guys. Everything for us was much harder to get credit for, even if we won more games. An ACC women's track athlete said, College athletic programs rely on black athletes' labor and increase profit. The more they exploit them physically and restrict their academic and social freedom, I never had the opportunity to speak freely amongst other athletes at my alma mater about this. An ACC football player said, Recently, especially this last season, you could see the slave mentality some coaches have regarding athletes. If you're producing, there's no problem. But however you show or express concern outside of football or your respective sport, you're a liability. An SEC football player said, I was told by coaches to drop classes that would take up too much time. I was told that my GPA was fine as long as my eligibility wasn't at risk. To have a lack of support from the athletic side and to not be able to fulfill my academic potential is tough. That player went on, boosters and alums are typically white and they're more than happy to hire people that look like them. Players who are persons of color aren't afforded these opportunities because we aren't members of the same club that our white counterparts are beckoned into. And again, we see there precisely that sort of University of Texas donor scandal narrative reproduced because this is the logic across the country. This is why we argue that big time power five college sport today is fundamentally saturated by plantation dynamics. And it's not just a question of statistics. It's not just a question of structure. It is a question, literally, of young black people being subjected to extreme forms of harm so that very particular embodied white people from donors to presidents to athletic department officials to coaches to media members benefit directly and economically off of that exploitation and harm. That's what it means to talk about the plantation dynamics in big-time college sport today. Now, the brilliant scholar Dr. Ben Carrington perhaps put this most poignantly when he tweeted at us, essentially, there will come a time, and this will likely be in the near future, when the exploitative nature of U.S. college sport will be over. And everyone's going to claim that they were in favor of change when, in fact, they were all complicit. And that's the story here. When the NCAA system as we currently know it is burned down to its exploitative core, we're all going to look back and think to ourselves, how did we let that happen? How did we let those people do that? How did we let them exploit and harm campus athletic workers in that way? 
And the truth is, it's not them. It's us. It's all of us. We're watching on as if we're helpless to what's happening. As if we can't do anything and we are powerless. When in reality, now is the time to show solidarity to these campus athletic workers as they fight for fair working conditions. Now is the time we join them. We get with them as they endure their fight for change, just like many of us have experienced ourselves. If you're in a union, if you support a union, now is the time to support these campus athletic workers as they strive for fair, equitable, non-exploitative working conditions. And yeah, that's going to fundamentally change college sports. The college sports you might know and you might love will be forever changed. But we've stood back for decades and watched the growth of the college sport industrial complex. And with it, the rise of mass exploitation of campus athletic workers so that we, the masses, can be entertained. Those bodies that have been put at harm's way for decades, especially in the Power Five, are disproportionately black and racialized bodies. And that is a fact. The coaches, the administrators, the leadership in the sports media industrial complex, these are predominantly white individuals in predominantly white institutions. And this system was built in such a way to allow for the systemic extraction of wealth from racialized communities on the part of powerful, wealthy, white individuals. What was true in the early 1980s when Cedric Robinson wrote about racial capitalism is true today in the context of the NCAA. And the question for all of us is, are we going to continue to be complicit in this system of mass racialized exploitation? We here at the end of sport stand in solidarity with campus athletic workers fighting for their rights, for say in their working conditions, for freedom of labor movement, and freedom from the coercion and control that they face at the hands of the NCAA, athletic departments, and member institutions.